We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dig dig dignity of man. One of the most dignified Americans ever is Mark Twain. He is alleged to have said, reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. While exceedingly rare, sometimes political obituaries can be premature as well. For example, after losing for California governor in 1962, Dick Nixon famously told reporters, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Well, he became president six years later. And in May, when conservative Prime Minister Theresa May of the UK called for snap elections for June 7th, she was riding high and sought to cement her power. Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the now leftist Labour Party, was seen as barely breathing, if not completely dead politically. Many said he wasn't even relevant. In fact, on May 20th, Theresa May wrote the following on her Facebook page. If I lose just six seats, I will lose this election. Well, she actually lost 13 seats in Parliament, and Corbyn's Labour Party picked up 29. As of this broadcast, Theresa May remains in power, but many have called uh, her a dead woman walking. So what happened? How can one explain this stunning turnaround, and in what ways might it have meaning for this side of the Atlantic? Our guest today is Mark Weisbrett, uh, who writes of the resurrection of Jeremy Corbyn truth as an effective political weapon. Is it possible? Can people really be ready for something so dangerous as the truth? Mark Weisbrett, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Mark Weisbrett is co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. He received his Ph.D. in economics from the University of Michigan, author of the book Failed, What the Experts Got Wrong About the Global Economy, and he's co-author with Dean Baker of Social Security, The Phony Crisis, and has written numerous research papers on economic policy. His opinion pieces have uh, appeared in oh, newspapers all around the world, and he's also president of just foreign policy, a very good group. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Mark. Conventional wisdom here, and I would assume in the UK, has it that being a bold, risk-taking truth-teller is indeed very risky politically. Democrats here and Labour in UK in recent years have hewed to a strategy of total risk avoidance, the safe middle ground, taking as few chances as possible to alienate any block of voters. Labor had many years of power under the leadership of Tony Blair, who was certainly like the Clintons here, being so careful as to upset no apple carts. On the other hand, Jeremy Corbyn has taken the Labor Party back to its roots in much the same way that Bernie Sanders has reinvigorated the traditionalists in the American Democratic Party. And similarly, Corbyn did not technically win on June 7th, 
And Bernie Sanders technically did not win the nomination either. But in what ways did they actually win while the winners lost? Yes, it's a very good point. Um, and I think there are a lot of similarities, and it's definitely worth looking at. I think it will. the election will affect uh, the rest of Europe and, and maybe the United States as well. Well, you do see so that one of the similarities is, like I said, the... the, the uh, Telling the truth, and, and telling the truth can be less risky in some ways, uh, and this is an example where we're caught in this uh, cycle of uh, war and, and terrorism. So uh, what happens is there's, uh, you know, we have these wars, uh, which ever since Afghanistan, uh, which, you know, provoke terrorism, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, and uh, and then our uh, political leaders use that as an excuse for more military interventions and more wars, and then you get more terrorism. So, you you know, in a sense, it's it's much more risky and more dangerous for Democratic Party politicians, especially, to just go along with this. Because, you know, another way to look at it is, I mean, you, you constantly see these polls showing that uh, no matter who's in power, the public trusts the Republicans more on, on national security. Now, why is that? Yeah. Because we've allowed uh, people to say that we're under existential threat from these terrorists who just uh, hate our way of life and so on, and there's no connection to anything that the U.S. does in the world. Yeah. And as long as uh, Democratic leadership uh, accepts that narrative, then, yeah, why shouldn't, if you really believe that, why shouldn't you vote for the party that's more brutal and the one that doesn't have a base uh, that would hold them back uh, from killing people, you know, as the Democratic Party has a base that is uh, doesn't, uh, you know, isn't as pro-war, for example, at all. And uh, so um, that's the kind of thing. And so Jeremy Corbyn, after the uh, Manchester terrorist attacks right. in the U.K., he said, uh, and I'll quote it, many experts, including professionals in our intelligence security services, have pointed to the connections between wars our government has supported or fought in other countries and terrorism here at home. And of course, he opposed all the uh, he opposed the UK involvement in the wars in Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, and and Syria. Now that was uh, you know that was a really gutsy thing to say because of course so the other side accused them of trying to legitimate terrorism and all the other things. And they have a very powerful right wing media in the UK, much more than here, yeah. and they echoed that. And and it didn't stick because people knew he was uh, telling the truth. And I think that's how that's one of the reasons he he was able to win. And I would think that, you know, you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. Uh, people eventually have to see, well, I would I would like to think that people get that, you know, why do that? Why not try something else? Because what's been going on so far, the terrorism attacks have only increased and there haven't been changes. Uh, your essay argues that, quote, the truth, so often dismissed as the first casualty of politics, can be an effective weapon. Uh, after the terrorist attack at that concert in Manchester, it seems the political thing to do is, is what was always done, call for a doubling down of current policies. And I have to assume Theresa May did that. Instead, Corbyn shocked many with what he said after the attack. Uh, why Why do you think it, it resonated more than before? Is it just the passage of time, do you think? Or, or was he really different and, and really 
going straight for what he thinks and what, frankly, I think is, uh, you know, it, it's only recruiting more terrorists what the U.S. and the U.K. have been doing. Yeah, I mean, it's partly because people realize it's true. There was a poll in the U.K. just last week or so showing that 75% of the people did believe that uh, the wars increased the likelihood of terrorist attacks at home. And so I think it is It is a lot of it's just that the people, the politicians don't want to say it. They don't want to take the risk. Now, most people in the U.K. didn't vote on foreign policy. That's uh-huh, true in most countries, yeah. right? Uh, and so the other thing that really got him back in the race, and you can see this in the polls, I think it was uh, May 18th when he, the Labor Manifesto came out. And there again, it was a document that said, look, you know, we need to increase spending on the National Health Service. Um, and, you know, uh, we we don't want these increases in the retirement age that the Tories are are supporting. We want to increase public investment. And uh, we want government-provided uh, child care, and we're going to pay for it by taxing rich people, we're going to tax corporations, and we're going to tax financial transactions. It's kind of like what Bernie did, mm-hmm. uh, proposed here as yes, well. Yes. And uh, again, you know, people supported this. I think part of the reason why the right-wing media uh, gave publicity is because they had uh, uh, concentrated on just, uh, you know, tearing down uh, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, character and, and just attacking him constantly in the media. And here they, the, the Labor Manifesto came out, and they thought probably that this was too left. It was calling for nationalization of the railways and the public utilities, and they thought it would hurt him, and it didn't. It turned out people really liked this. They liked the, this, uh, and especially the younger people. And for that, you have to include probably everybody under 45, because just like here, where that was, you know, that's where Bernie got a majority of everybody under 45. It's the same thing in the in the UK, and and you know it's interesting. I mean, obviously that bodes very well for both uh, in both countries because uh, you know uh, that's the future is people who are younger and really is going to live for a while. And uh, but I think that the uh, the senior citizens are going to move too because they're the ones uh, that are you know here in the U.S. You have very little retirement savings. So people age 55 to 64, they're, they're going to run into trouble. We're going to need increases in Social Security. And in, the, in, the, um, in Europe, including the UK, it's, uh, it's more defensive in the sense that they're trying to raise and, and are raising retirement ages all over the place. So I think that that's, that's part of what he did. He, you know, and, and uh, he addressed these concerns that people really care about. He's been like, just like Bernie's been saying the same thing for 30 years. And so there's an authenticity as well. And that's, I think you see this everywhere. Uh, Mélenchon in, in France, for example, the leftist uh, candidate in the uh, first round of the presidential election who came within 1.3 percentage points really? wow. of getting to the second round. These are all people who everybody knows they're, they're, they're saying what they believe. They're not corrupt. You know, that was a big part of Bernie's uh, campaign, right? He didn't sure. take any contributions from corporations. Um, and, uh, and, and this is what uh, people want. Uh, and part of it is this long-term economic failure, which we can talk about, which is different in each of the countries, but has certain things in common. 
If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and you are part of it by listening. Our guest today is Mark Weisbrot, who has written an article about uh, the resurrection of Jeremy Corbyn in the U.K., truth as an effective political weapon. Authenticity. I'll tell you, I think people get that because they expect politicians to be inauthentic. And say what you will about the orange one here, he came across as authentic. People got that he was different, and, and the Democratic nominee was pff, anything but authentic. He just, just didn't come across as authentic at all. And I think my guess is people are striving for that. There's no lack of evidence that fear can be very effectively used to manipulate public opinion, I, I would imagine, in England as well. Corbyn instead, as you say, explained to people what is actually happening as opposed to riling up fear. I haven't traveled that much, but from what I've seen— People in other countries follow politics and government generally much more than we Americans do. My question is, can that telling, explaining to people what is actually happening, can that work here in America? Is there not a level of political sophistication that is required for truth-telling to be successful? I mean, the American voting public has been intentionally dumbed down for decades. Can it work here? Are they more sophisticated in general in, in the U.K. and in Europe? Well, you know, it, 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 is, it is true. I think um, you, you do have less attention to politics here than you would, say, in the U.K. Uh, but I think, you know, you, first of all, you saw what happened with Bernie. He got 46% of the vote, and he came out of nowhere. Um in terms of nobody had really, you know, not that many people oh, knew yeah. who he was before he ran. And so there's definitely a readiness for that. What you said about Trump was true as well. I mean, in the Republican primary, which is nothing anybody should hold up as a model of anything, <laughs> he was able to win uh, because it was clear that he was uh, different um, than the others. He wasn't part of the establishment or whatever. So there's an anti-establishment uh, revolt uh, everywhere. But, yeah, I think uh, it can definitely succeed here. You know, I mean, a big obstacle is the media. So uh -huh. the major media uh, gave uh, Bernie just a fraction of the uh, media that they gave to Trump. Right. I mean, a, a small fraction. Yeah, if yeah, I think if he had had that kind of media attention, and from a logical point of view, why wouldn't he, right? He's an anti-establishment candidate in a much more interesting party and with a much more interesting debate. Uh, why shouldn't he have been the news, you know? And he wasn't, because they yeah. decided not to. And so that's a very, very big thing, um, and a big obstacle. And uh, to any, I mean, I think the media is one of the most important obstacles to social change in every country that I'm uh, familiar with. I focus mostly on the U.S. and uh, Latin America and Europe. And, uh, and it's, of course, worse in a lot of other countries than it is here. Yeah. But uh, still, uh, it is, you know, it is changing some. Social media has some impact. Um, and obviously uh, the monopoly of the big media has been eroded to some degree. Yeah. And and that's the direction I think we're, that's, that's the direction the country is, is really going. I mean, I think Bernie is still the most uh, popular active politician in the country, and he lost the yes. primary. So, that's I think a lot of people are confused because you know Trump is president. And they think oh well maybe this country has moved to the right like it did with you know Reagan and Nixon 
and 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 that's not really what's happening there. Uh, what we really have is people are moving in the direction. That's the way the public public opinion has been moving, and that hasn't really changed in spite of the fact that, you know, Trump uh, has the bully pulpit and they have the Congress and the presidency, uh, but they have not been able to use it to to move people in their direction in terms of what people want and believe. Yeah, people in terms of issues certainly are not moving to the right, uh, but it was, I, I do think the... Uh, the authenticity question, who's for real and who's not. And people, I think, more and more over time get a, a sense of that. I think you're right. The, the, the mainstream media is having less of a hold. It still does have a very big hold here. But one big difference between the U.K. and the uh, U.S., uh, I mean, there are similarities, but one huge difference, as you described, is electoral laws regulating the TV media, which are intended to give equal television time to the contending parties. How possible? I, we we no longer have the uh, the fairness doctrine, so the media can do whatever the heck they want. Really, how possible is it that mainstream media might see the dramatic value? We know how much politics is theater. You know, if they see the dramatic value of a brave truth teller and give him or her fair coverage, is is the difference in systems a death blow for people like Bernie Sanders and Jerry Cor- Jeremy Corbyn? Here, would it be a death blow? Could it be that Americans, even unsophisticated Americans, people who don't spend a lot of time in politics, people who have, may have voted for Donald Trump, might actually be drawn to genuine political leaders who are not afraid to tell the truth? I don't see the mainstream Democratic Party doing that, and the DNC is resisting that mightily. But, but what do you, are, are, is the truth something that people get that can actually work here, do you think? That's the question we're trying to focus on. Yeah, I absolutely uh, think so. I mean, you've always had polling data here that was, and, you know, Noam Chomsky always talks about this, all the questions where if you look at the polling data, people are, they want universal health care. Yes. You know, they generally favor a a foreign policy that's not as interventionist or anywhere near what uh, what the foreign policy establishment here wants. I mean, on a whole set of issues, uh, you have uh, people that are ready for... uh, you know, serious uh, change, and that's one of the reasons why, as I said, Bernie uh, did as well as he did. I mean, there are other structural problems as well. Uh, you know, the media is just uh, one of them. You know, here you can look at the parties. There is a difference that's noticeable uh, in the UK. For example, uh, the the Labour Party was leadership, the entrenched leadership, and the shadow cabinet, and the members of, uh, most of the members of parliament in the Labor Party were trying to get rid of uh, Jeremy for some time now, and they did not succeed. But after this election, uh, these same people started to say really nice things about him. Uh, And uh, so they've changed their tone. Now, you haven't seen that the same thing here right. in the Democratic leadership. You don't see them, even though Bernie has brought new life and blood and youth and energy into the party. It's so obvious uh, yeah. that you know uh, they should uh, they should 
welcome that and they should support that. They're not yet. And you had that big fight over the leadership of yes. the, you know, the Democratic National Committee and uh, and the establishment uh, was able to win. Yeah. And, uh, or, well, it's, it's winning in terms of they got their person in there, uh, but it's losing in terms of the future of the party. And I think that's going to have to uh, change. I think the other structural impediments we have here is we have a terrible uh, system of disenfranchisement and um, and gerrymandering. And if you took those two things, I mean, the Republican Party, for example, I think it's arguable whether it's even a legitimate political party, because if you didn't have this level of disenfranchisement, in other words, if the U.S. just had voter participation, uh, which we could have if we had elections on a Sunday and we had other right. reforms that made it easier to vote. Uh, and we didn't have the gerrymandering that's been done since the last census. Um, you wouldn't, I don't think the Republicans would have a, a much of a chance at, at, at national power, either presidency or, or Congress. And there's a lot of polling data that supports that. In other words, if you look at the non-voters, uh you know they're uh, they tend to vote uh much more uh, democratic than republican and then of course if you look at how the districts are gerrymandered yes. it has a, a very significant effect on the election so those are two kind of structural changes that we also are going to we we don't necessarily need them i mean i think it's very possible that you'll see real a real shift in 2018. I I wouldn't say we we do need them. I'm just saying they're not absolutely uh, they're not precluding further progress uh, completely, but they're a major structural obstacle to change in this country. And I can't help but think that you know the UK, which had uh, uh, their previous uh, you know Clintonite person who was the the head of it. Right now, the the people have spoken, and it seems to me that within the Democratic Party right now, the the heads of the DNC, the you know the old mucky mucks in Washington, et cetera, they 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 don't want to go with Bernie Sanders, but it's happening anyway. Maybe not Bernie, but that wing of the party, what Wellstone called the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, is coming around anyway. And people need to recognize that, you know, we are not just consumers here. We're citizens. We get to participate in it and make it happen. And we need to talk to uh, youngish people who have given up on it because it didn't happen overnight and and show them that, uh, you know, when the people talk when, and when they recognize authenticity, like as in Jeremy Corbyn and in Bernie Sanders, it actually can make a difference. Do we? I, I wonder about uh, the labor manifesto. And people hear the word manifesto here. I don't think they recognize what it is. Really, it's just the the platform of the party, uh, the, the labor manifesto. Uh, tell us, please, about what is in that. What the labor platform might be. And my sense is that this relates very much to the differing platforms of the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party and the more traditional liberal wing of the party. So what is in that, that manifesto that seems to be uh, connecting with people and just really uh, uh, talking about the real truth? Well, I mentioned some of them. Obviously, the National Health Service, there's been cuts, so they proposed an expansion of that. Um, you know, uh, child care, the government paying for mm-hmm. child care. Uh, and uh, labor rights legislation, so making you know allowing workers to bargain 
for example, uh, industry-wide uh, or, or uh, you know, at a national level, um, the making it easier for them to do that. Uh, you know, the uh, fight, the pushback against the increases in the retirement age, which they're already uh, they were going to have. Um, and and public investment, and then of course the taxes to pay for that on uh, high high earners. It was over uh, I think yeah. a hundred four thousand pounds, I believe, um, and the uh, taxing the financial sector. So these are all things. Uh, I, this is a you know a kind of a populist program, uh-huh. and you know this uh, um, idea. You know what you're saying about whether people can be involved and actually do these things. Part of what's going on is a process of people getting involved and in things that they didn't pay attention to. You know, here's an example I think is interesting from the United States. You know, you know, traditionally, if you look at Obama's two election, now Obama's election in 2008 was definitely a mass movement. So that was a result, partly, of people getting involved, right, mm-hmm. in the election. But when it came time to pick his cabinet uh, in both 2008 and 2012, it was all chosen by corporations. I mean, yes. there was no debate. There was no input. There was nothing, uh, you know, it was as if uh, nobody noticed that the people uh, that are, uh, you know, that are going to actually carry out policy and make these decisions on a daily basis. That uh, maybe we, ha- we the people, have a stake in that too, just like we have a stake in who's president. Yes. And you know that actually changed after 2012 with the Bernie uh, rebellion. Uh, it so happened that Hillary was not elected, but if she had been elected, uh, there was that whole wing of the party that was actually going to fight. Uh, around the cabinet nominations, oh. who's going to who is going to be the secretary of the treasury, secretary of state, um, all of the cabinet positions, and that's an example of how something that for decades and maybe a century nobody pays attention, and then it becomes an issue, and then that really changes the whole uh, ball game if people really get involved and things like that. The same is true of these uh, so-called trade agreements, you know, the commercial agreements like the TPP. I mean, you go back 20 years, and, uh, you know, just before NAFTA, and these things were just in the business pages of the newspaper, and nobody really talked about them, and then they became a mass issue, and now they got to the point where something, which I think is uh, unprecedented, something like the TPP, which every uh, powerful sector of our elite, including all the corporations, the whole national security state, 17 intelligence agencies, everybody who has any power at all wanted this, and it's still lost. Yeah, interesting. And that never would have happened if TPP hadn't been up in an election year. Uh-huh. We have this kind of enhanced uh, democracy. Uh, if it, it had been any other time, they would have gotten it, but they didn't. Oh. And so that is, I think, an example of how uh, things really are changing, uh, even though the you know we're looking at a Trump administration and Republican Congress at this moment. Like I said, I don't think that's the direction that the country is going at all. And I I believe that in you know modern American history for well over a hundred years there has been I mean let's face it if you ask people what do they think of Wall Street what do they think of the big corporations 
they still have that power, but the, the popular uh, uh, support for them is not there. And if people just could connect with that, as Bernie did, I think it's, uh, it's possible. But tell, I mean, hopefully this will lead to some more uh, uh, brave politicians. And it, you know, it doesn't take that much courage. But you know, if they hoist something up the flagpole and we don't, we don't know if anybody's going to salute it or not. But telling the truth, I'll tell you, I think it's uh, it's highly important. And I'm going to play a song now. Thank you for being with us, Mark Weisbrot, uh, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, one that you suggested I play by Captain Ska. Tell us about uh, the power. Of, did this come out before the election in the U.K.? No, it was during the election, and I just I actually just found out about it. I didn't see it during the election, but it was... If you go to YouTube, it has a few million hits. It was apparently the third most popular song, even though it was banned on BBC. Yeah. And it's a beautiful song. <laughs> and it, 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 the video that goes with it is very, very effective as well. All right. If people want to follow what your, your work, Mark, before I play the song, what should they go to on the web? Uh, it's CEPR.net, Center for Economic and Policy Research, CEPR.net. Thank you so much, and we'll listen to Captain Ska, Liar, Liar. Thanks so much. Thank you. We have a mission to make Britain a country that works, not for the privileged and not for the few, but for every one of our citizens. And together, we, the Conservative Party, can build a better Britain. She's a liar, liar. She's a liar, liar. No, you can't trust her. No, 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 no. She's a liar, liar. She's a liar, liar. No, you can't trust her. No, 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 no. We all know politicians like telling lies. period of time, that stability, to be able to deal with the issues that the country is facing. I'm not going to be calling a snap election. She's a liar, liar. She's a liar, liar. future generations look back at this time. They will judge us not only by the decision that we made, but by what we made of that decision. They will see that we shaped them a brighter future. They will know that we built them a better Britain. She's a liar, liar. She's a liar, liar. She's a liar, liar. No, no. 
if people aren't involved, if it's a very un-Jeffersonian system of money, where is the democracy? Have we morphed into a complete plutocracy? Is there any way out of it? The economy is improving. The jobless rate is holding at less than 5% officially. But how real is this alleged recovery? Is the problem and the solution really more basic and structural than the current holders of debt will even consider allowing us to look at? Is it time to actually erase debts? Yes, erase debts as a way to more effectively restart the economy and create new jobs? Is this all practical? Is there any precedent for something like this? Well, our guest today is Mike Krauss, who is founding director of the Public Banking Institute and chair of the Pennsylvania Project and a former officer of the Pennsylvania County and State Government and director of the Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania rather Republican Party. Thanks for being with us, Mike Krauss. Please tell us first about the Public Banking Institute, and the Pennsylvania Project with which you are involved? Well, the Public Banking Institute was formed back in 2011 uh, to move forward the idea of public banks as they have had in North Dakota for over 100 years. And the Pennsylvania Project is one of a couple dozen local organizations uh, moving these same activities forward, whether at a state level or at a, a local level, a county, a city, a municipality. Um, might be interesting how I, how I came to this. I was my business has been, has been international logistics, and I was in Africa and came back uh, in late 2008 and saw things fall apart and said, geez, what, what just happened here? I went to find out. That led me to a book by Bill Greider called Secrets of the Temple, and it explained what the Federal Reserve is all about and how our banking system actually works, which is that the Fed is a private corporation owned by the nation's banks, and it works for the banks. And that, that kind of told me all I needed to know. Right. Well, one of the biggest attractions that many people found to Ron Paul's candidacy in years past was his call, and it seemed to be his alone, his call to take power away from the privately owned Federal Reserve System and instead democratize it. Now, Hillary Clinton has proposed public-private partnerships in which, if I have it right, the public would provide the guarantee to attract private investment. So it seems like we, the people, take the risk while they, the private investment people, uh, reap the profits, while a large portion of the money goes to paying back interest instead of the creation of new public works jobs as uh, advertised. Do I have that right? Well, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly correct. Uh, what a public bank does is it keeps your funds locally productive. Uh, you use your own funds, pension funds, other investments to capitalize the bank. You put your own deposits, your tax revenues, what have you, in the bank. It functions as a bank, uh, but not a retail bank. It, it has no infrastructure, no branches, tellers, ATMs, that sort of stuff. That, that makes them very profitable. Those profits can be returned to the general fund, reinvested in more loans. But in any event, the bank then partners with local banks to get affordable credit into the community, or it can loan directly to uh, municipalities. For example, the Bank of North Dakota is putting one and a half percent money out there to school districts to uh, refurbish new schools, add classrooms, add science labs, what have you, instead of going after a bond issue. But whatever interest is paid is captured in your own bank. The alternative, what we're hearing more about as regards infrastructure, are public-private partnerships. And that's, that's a Wall Street special. 
to use public money to guarantee and leverage private investors, and the private investors then finance, own, and rent back to you what used to be public infrastructure. That's just, you know, that's privatization heaven. And from my point of view, it's largely a scam. A scam. Well, it is certainly uh, profitable. Uh, if you just tuned in, our guest today is Mike Krauss, a founding director of the Public Banking Institute, and we're talking about kind of a, a new idea, and that is to erase debts. Now, I'm, how would you define that? We're not talking about you know people, individuals borrow money from lending institutions. We're not talking about erase those debts. What what are you talking about? And tell us about this uh, article that you wrote on Truthdig about this subject. Well, what I was getting out of the article is the overarching problem, which is the, the nation is simply drowning in debt. Uh, governments, students, individuals, businesses are just loaded up with debt, yes. uh, and the interest on that debt. And we're on a treadmill, just paying off the interest, and that just sucks money out of the economy and out of your household budget for private and productive purposes. So the, the major need I see is to, is to pay down, pay off, or get rid of the debt. Now, I say I see. I, I'm hardly expert here, uh, but uh, Michael Hudson, who is expert, wrote a book called Killing the Host, and it lays out just how the financial community has, has been like the third arm of modern economics. You know, we used to think yeah. there were workers and there were capitalists. Right. Uh, but now we have financialists, and they're in the middle of all our transactions, and, and they're sucking money out of the laborer's pocket and out of the capitalist's pocket. So financialists, uh, financialization it's called, make everything into a deal, right. uh, and leverage money right and left and use that to get more debt. Uh, just extracts money from your household budget, from your city budget, and from your businesses, for that matter, too. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we, one of the attractions about the Bernie Sanders campaign was uh, eliminating uh, students' debts. Students have a lot of debts and very high interest debts. And the power of the financial industry, I think it was Kevin Phillips, who for years has been talking about uh, this new twist in within our economic system, which is uh, the the incredible power of the financial houses, which, as you say, are something uh, really uh, different and and unique. And I know Franklin Roosevelt talked about uh, the power of sure. And, and and we have simply through legislation uh, tilted the field away from the productive economy to the speculative economy, allowing the the big banks to combine their banking and finance industries was like one of the great. Really bad decisions of the 20th century. I know after the Depression, uh, Roosevelt and uh, his supporters in Congress through the Glass-Steagall Act separated yes. out the banks and the finance industry. Uh, but the Clinton era, that was legislation was gotten rid of. It was called a great modernization. But it simply allowed the banks then to take deposits money and use that to underwrite and leverage their bets, their speculation. Um, you know. That's what's underwriting the derivatives market. You know, so you, right now you see banks like Wells Fargo and uh, Chase and others. They're suddenly interested in more retail customers. You know, come bank with us. Well, they want your deposits to underwrite uh, the gambling, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and those derivatives, which we're underwriting, are like, you know, grown to several hundreds of trillions of dollars. Mm. If these bets go sideways, there's not enough money in the FDIC or anywhere in the world to cover them. And I think we're heading for another crash. Uh, and what happens is we'll, we'll bail in the banks. They'll just seize deposit money, as they did in Cyprus, for example. I think that's what's coming. So one of the needs that public banking meets is to secure your funds away from uh, the, the risky practices of the Wall Street banks, which have gone unchecked, frankly, over the last eight years. They've just gotten worse. Yeah. 
they have gotten worse, certainly. And, uh, you know, the, the situation that created the, uh, the crisis back in 2008, 2009 has only gotten worse. And there's just no checks whatsoever. I mean, we have the Dodd-Frank bill, which doesn't seem to be very much. And again, the, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders called for uh, a restoration, a modernization of the Glass-Steagall Act, which, as you described, separated out the, the financial houses from the banks. Your article in Truthig offers an alternative, and that is to let the Treasury extend almost zero interest loans to state and local governments to pay off their debts because states and local governments, of course, borrow money. They issue bonds. They borrow money. Uh, And so you're suggesting that the, the Treasury skips the Federal Reserve, which is their to serve not really the common good, but to serve the investors. It's to, well, to it's important to understand how money is created by the Fed. The Fed doesn't have piles of gold backing its money. That's long gone. The Fed takes the faith and credit of the United States. Yes. It uses that to then go to the bond market, where bond sellers sell that faith and credit at interest. They return that money to the Fed, and the Fed gives it to the Treasury. This is insane. We have a middleman. Uh, mm. We're paying exorbitant interest rates. For the, per- for the privilege of having our own money. What, what I'm proposing, uh, and others have proposed, I think, is to bypass the Fed uh, to attack the big macro problem, which is the debt burden. We must do something to, le- to, to erase that debt burden. So, for example, if, if the Treasury, as did Lincoln, and as uh, Secretary LaHood proposed way back when, simply pr- provided the money directly from the Treasury, uh, our facing credit to local governments, for example, to pay off debt. Well, that means school districts, authorities, towns, cities can pay down their debt immediately. That, that debt service portion goes out of the local budget and either reduces the tax burden or frees up those taxes for productive purpose in the community. That was one idea. The second is then, of course, to extend $3 trillion of that same almost no-cost credit for infrastructure projects, which would generate an explosion of activity yes. in, the, in the public productive sector in, in the supply chain of goods and services. It would be extraordinary. And the third idea was to pay down student debt. You know, right now, the Bank of North Dakota is offering very low-cost loans for every student in the state to consolidate all its more expensive debt, hmm. uh, eliminating that debt burden. But we need to get the debt burden off the American people so we can focus our, our monies on productive purposes. That debt burden is largely artificial. It was created because we have a middleman. Yes, the, the the larger banks, the bond, the bond system, what have you, in the middle of creating our money, and then loaning us money at exorbitant rates uh, for public purposes. We don't need them. That's the macro. The micro is then to 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 rehabilitate our banking system and create public banks, so that our tax revenues, our local assets, are put to work locally, local direction, local purposes, local control, local profit. That that is a way of decentralizing the banking system. And strengthening our community banks, local credit unions, the local banking industry, as against the Wall Street banks. Hmm. So I wonder, and more and more people are doing that, Democrats, Republicans, liberals, and conservatives, they like to, I mean, there's this new sort of ethos of keep your money local. Don't put it in a big bank, you know, the, uh, what, First National Bank, Bank of America, the big banks, uh, and and keep it local so that they can lend uh, locally. What happens to these banks now, these 
for-profit, frankly, banks, and, and they're making it on a shoestring these days. I mean, I don't know how they're doing it, really. But what, what happens... We have a very uneven playing field in the banking industry. Uh, the biggest banks just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and they're squeezing out the local banks. Uh, we want to give market share back to the local banks and credit unions and, and savings and loans, who, frankly, are... They live in the community. They're, they're related to what's going on. They care. Uh, you know, you, you go to, let's say, you know, Wells Fargo for a loan. Mm-hmm. Somebody a thousand miles away makes that decision. With yes. absolutely no connection to your community whatsoever. <laughs> I know. You know, the local officers are just intake people. They push paper, uh, and it goes to a center someplace else. Uh, and someone who doesn't know you, can't size you up as a customer, uh, doesn't know about your community, doesn't care about your community, they make the decisions based on their next quarterly statement. Right. Uh, that's a rotten way to bank. It's great. <laughs> If you're a big bank, it's terrible if you're a community, which needs banking services uh, sized to and built around the needs of the community. That's one thing that public banking does. The whole, the whole idea, Bert, is to facilitate and encourage our diversity. You know, going back to de Tocqueville, who observed the tremendous diversity of American people, we've only gotten more diverse. That diversity is, is an asset, and if you can enable that asset, then you enable that diversity in the country. So public banking is a way to democratize our banking, but at the same time to enable the diversity of our, of our nation. Uh, we think that's a way, a way back to greater productivity. That seems to make a lot of sense, and again, it is working in North Dakota and other places. But, and I thought it was very interesting that, that the Federal Reserve System is charging us high interest to use our own money. Now, the, the, there's nothing... If I understand it correctly, there's nothing stopping the Treasury from creating this new money and bypassing the Federal Reserve and cutting out the bankster middlemen uh, for their, you know, usurious interest. No, Lincoln did it with an act of Congress, uh, and it can be done again. The, 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 the Treasury can be directed to engage in this activity. It, it used to. It can. Uh, understand, um, the, the Congress can do anything it wants. Yes. <laughs> if tomorrow... In a week's time, there could be an amendment to overturn the Citizens United if the Congress wanted to do that. Right. Um, and if the Congress wanted to enable the Treasury to make these kinds of transactions, it could do it. The power resides in the Congress. They just have to want to do it. Uh, and obviously, as most listeners will know, the, the, the banking industry, meaning the Wall Street banks, have enormous, enormous clout in Washington. We, we all know that. Oh, yeah. you know, I'm not telling it. anybody anything. Here, yeah. uh, so it will require putting people on the spot. Uh, that is to say, cancer Congress. Say, okay, what do you want to do here? We have these problems. Here's one way to fix it. You know, what's your idea? Uh, and do, do you or do you not want to get out from under the debt burden? Mm-hmm. I don't think people generally understand yeah. just how phenomenally in debt we are and and why and to whom mm. we are indebted to a global financial cartel. That's to whom we are indebted. They're sucking money out of the United States of America. They're like a gigantic parasite. Uh, it needn't be that way. It didn't used to be that way. It needn't be that way in the future. But it, but it will require citizens to understand the scam going on here, the longest-running con game since the Fed was created, and put an end to the con game, uh, and use our own treasury to fund productive purposes in our own economy. It can be done. There's no constitutional bar to this. Mm-hmm. There's no legal bar to it. Uh, it's simply a matter of political will. And the Federal Reserve System came in in the early part of the 20th century, is that correct? 1913. And what made it happen? It seems odd. Well, what made it happen was an enormous lobbying effort. 
if if you read William Bridle's Secret to the Temple, which uh, goes through the history of the Fed, yeah, sure. you discover a decades-long campaign uh, to wrest control of the nation's money supply into the hands of the banking elite. It was a long, long campaign. They they employed academics, they employed journalists, what we call lobbyists, they or mm. called flats, what have. It was a long, long campaign over two decades uh, to persuade the Congress to make this move, and eventually it prevailed. Uh, but it was a you know it was a banking coup basically uh, that took unto itself the, the control over the, of the supply and the cost of the nation's money. It, it, this is an old battle. It's been going on for ages. Uh, mm. If you read uh, Ellen Brown's Ellen Brown's The Public Bank Solution, you get a history of this ongoing war uh, to wrest control of the, the, the wealth of nations, including our nation, Great Britain, mm-hmm. others, into the hands of a, of a financial elite somewhere. There's a marvelous quote of one of the Rothschilds back in 1820, 40, somewhere like that. And he said, give me control of a nation's money, and I care not who makes the laws. Mm-hmm. It's an enormous power, <laughs> and we've given it to a global cartel. Wow, that's why uh, Franklin Roosevelt said that uh, the power of organized money is as dangerous as uh, government by organized mob. Very, very similar. Well, that, that you just said something interesting. If you read Matt Tybee and uh, other folks in Rolling Stone, he compares banking to a mob racket that, that's just organized crime, basically, uh, which goes unpunished, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, you know, one of the little signs you get of how things actually are uh, is that, you know, after all this criminal activity, huge investigations, massive fraud, banks got fined for felonies. Banks got paid, had to pay, you know, billions of dollars of fines, but no banker went to jail. Mm-hmm. So great. What a, what, a, what a wonderful racket. But, you know, the Fed's going to cover for us. And that's what happened. My goodness. I, I guess in Iceland they did it pretty differently recently. They actually uh, put some of those guys in jail. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, our guest uh, on this half hour is Mike Kraus, where he's founding uh, director of the Public Banking Institute and chair of the Pennsylvania Project. And we're talking about... Uh, 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 eliminating debt, erasing the debt, doing it as it seems like our founders intended us to use our own money and have some democratic process in it. And talking about history, tell us about the precedent set by Abraham Lincoln after the war against the South. What did he do that uh, is sort of... Well, during the war, uh, Lincoln had right. the same problem. Uh, he was going to the banks in New York, or the government was, to finance the war. And they wanted, you know, 30% interest, that sort of stuff. And he <laughs> said, well, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, and he passed the law in the Congress, and that led to, over time, the creation of $450 million of treasury bills called greenbacks. They were green. Um, and that was put into the economy to pay the war, pay soldiers' salaries, and then later uh, for an economic expansion that followed, which was substantial. He simply cut out the middleman. Uh, of course, after Lincoln died, that law was overturned, and mm. we went back to bank financing. But that $450 million then in today's dollars, is about $6.3 billion. So this, this can be done. The numbers we're proposing, uh, $3, bill, $3 trillion, I'm sorry, let me say that again, that, that $450 million is $6.3 trillion in today's dollars. Yeah, real dollars. So clearly, uh, the Treasury has the capacity to help state, local government, school districts pay off their debts. Clearly, it has the capacity to fund cities and counties and states in infrastructure projects. Clearly, it has the capacity to eliminate student debt, or at least to refinance it at much lower terms. Uh, and easing that debt burden then frees up what we're paying in interest to go into our own 
communities, our own families, our own businesses. It, it is potentially a revolutionary. And I wonder if any, talk about revolutionary, this was a uh, term that Bernie Sanders used quite a bit. D- did he have anything like this in his proposals? And are there any candidates now talking about anything like this? Did you, are there any candidates talking about this? Yeah, I mean... It, yes, when, yes, of course. There, there are people running for state treasurer, uh, state representative, state senator, members of Congress, uh, all over the nation. Uh, Tim Canova, by the way, mm-hmm. who's opposing Debbie Wasserman Schultz down there in Florida in yes. that primary, yes. is an advocate of public banking and uh-huh. of federal reserve reform. A uh, fellow running for state treasurer out in Washington. Uh, you have uh, folks in New Hampshire... Uh, I think it's uh, State Rep. Valley Fraser, who's an advocate of public banking. Uh, there's a, a city councilman and, and also uh, a state rep, uh, Chris, uh, Chris Herbert, uh, who's uh, a supporter of this. We have mayors, city council members, ideas, bills uh, moving forward in city councils and state legislatures. So the answer is yes. Uh, we're building a national caucus uh, of advocates of public banking, uh, but trying to put them in the context of, of finance reform. Uh, and control of our money and, and democratizing it again. Yes. So the answer is yes. There are people who highlighted this uh, message in their campaigns running for office right now at, at Congress, state rep, city council, state treasurer, across the nation, coast to coast. And when there are uh, usurious interest rates uh, paid by different countries around the world, uh, developing nations, uh, the the uh, gang <laughs> that lends money to them, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, haven't they refinanced the debt? Have, have they ever forgiven a debt of a country and just erased the debt? And, and Almost never. Uh, yeah, what the World Bank and uh, IMF do is they simply refinance, and they pile more debt upon more debt. That's yes, how they right. ran Greece under the ground. Yeah. They just kept extending more and more credit. With, by the way, with a risk premium, this is a, this is a sweetheart deal. Uh, you know, you're going to loan to Greece or you're going to loan to Detroit or Puerto Rico, for example, and you say, gee, that's risky. So instead of 8%, I'll make it 13% or 7%. <laughs> I want a risk premium. Well, then they go under, and the bonds will say, we want all our money back, including the risk premium. Mm-hmm. So we took the risk, and uh, there is a risk, but we, we want to be paid for it anyway. And that's, that's a, just typical of what goes on in global finance. That that would be uh, make any uh, mafia person uh, envious, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, <laughs> as, uh, as Matt Tybee said. It's you know, it's basically it's a mob, it's a racket. Yeah, uh, it's a first class racket. It's a good racket, <laughs> uh, and they've been getting away with it for decades. And we need to put an end to the racket. I got to ask: Did did Franklin Roosevelt? Did he go through the Federal Reserve, which was in existence at the time, or did he go straight? Or dealt with the Fed? Uh, it, it was there, but he had a sharp. Fed Chairman uh, Marion X, who understood all this, who knew how the money was created. But Roosevelt went around them. He had a reconstruction finance corporation that grew to be the largest company in the United States, uh, financing much of the New Deal reconstruction. Um, and he, he bypassed uh, the Fed in that regard. Uh, it went to the Congress. Uh, and Congressmen saw this was a great deal. All these projects, I mean, you know, the, the, re, the, the finance agency employed, what, 8 million people. It built, I don't know, the, the San Antonio Riverwalk, Pennsylvania Turnpike, LaGuardia Airport, oh, yeah. the Dam, you know. National parks. Projects all across the nation. It was quite, quite successful. Yes. And it was run independent of the Fed. It was a private corporation uh, that Roosevelt set up. Hmm. 
but they didn't make money back, did they? I mean, they didn't charge interest, did they? Well, it, it, it stayed, it, by the way, it stayed in business into the 50s when the banks realized that they were being cut out uh, of the financing of uh, all these projects, uh-huh. and they quietly killed it uh, in, I think, 1952. Of but course. It, it, had, it was, at its time, the biggest corporation in the United States by asset and by dollar amount, and it was a government corporation. Um, and it put public money to public purposes and cut out, simply cut out the finance guys in the middle. Uh, and so it was an adjustment to the capitalist system, so we actually got back to workers and capitalists and not so many financialists. Mm. Now that's been totally wiped away. Uh, and the financial sector is bigger than the labor sector, it's bigger than the capital sector, it dominates the economy. Uh, and it, it's grown to ever and ever larger, and it's just sucking money out of the American body public. And Edgar Bronfman called interest the greatest invention of the world. And we have this capitalist system, which depends on what Edgar Bronfman loves so much, interest. Wouldn't what's being proposed here threaten capitalism itself? Well, we, we, we are hung up on definitions and slogans, frankly. Um, late 20th century capitalism is, uh, has uh, evolved into ever larger and larger global monopolies. At some point in time, Capitalists survive with, by getting rid of competition. Uh, and so what you see globally is this ever larger tend towards global monopolies. That's what the Trans-Pacific Trade Pact is all about. Uh. It's about globalizing certain industries, uh, creating huge monopolies, uh, factoring out competition, uh, and, and rigging the marketplace. So, so, you know, 20th century capitalism is basically dying. Uh, maybe of its own success, maybe not, but it's certainly dying uh, into global monopolies which is the, the, the last latent malignant form of capitalism. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, either going to, it's either going to rule the world uh, and we'll hmm. become serfs of a debt plantation, as it were, or hmm. we change that. Uh, so we're arguing for change. At the macro level, we want to see the government directly fund its own activities and bypass the middlemen who charge interest to give us that money. And at the micro level, we want to see public banks at the, at the state, local, county level using local resources to capitalize the bank uh, and putting local deposits in that bank and putting it to work for locally directed purposes. That would be a, a great democratization of our economy. Uh, you know, I, my degree is not in economics. I'm learning this as I go. It's in government. But what I know from my government studies is that in all societies, almost every time, political power is a function of wealth. And when wealth is concentrated, then so too is political power. Yeah. If you deconcentrate the wealth, you will of necessity, and eventually deconcentrate the political power. So when I look at the United States today, I say, well, political reform would be great, but that's not the first purpose. You you must reform the economy, and then the political reform will follow as a Uh matter of course. Uh Decentralize the money, and you will decentralize the power. So that's why I, although I'm a government major, I'm these days focused on banking and and, and economics, because I think I understand the way the game is played. Well, that makes it pretty clear. I mean, and the title of the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It is one heavy lift. We all need to be part of it. And, and, you know, I prefer democracy to plutocracy. I really do. And I think you do, too, Mike Krause. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, very informative. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, you know, what, what website? Well, it's can you- my pleasure. And let me just ask folks who are interested yeah. to go to one of two websites. Uh, we have the Pennsylvania Project, www.publicbankingpa.org and the national organization, www.publicbankinginstitute.org. There is a wealth of information there, papers, resources, studies, current events, 
it's, uh, it's a good education. We will get there. I'm convinced of it. Thank you again so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. National loan sharks backed by the guns of market hungry military profiteers whose word is a swamp and whose brow is smeared with the blood of the poor.